Hey y'all, welcome to Feasting on Truth, episode six. I'm Erin Warren. I can hardly believe that we are halfway through this fall study of John 1 through 10. We've seen over and over through these first five chapters how John continually points us to the deity of Jesus. And as you'll hear in the teachings for this chapter this week, we are moving into a new section of stories. And y'all, this passage really got me this week because these Jewish leaders are trying to school Jesus on the law. But guys, he wrote the law. And I love how in these next five chapters, we see Jesus setting the record straight about the intent of the law in these Jewish feasts. During our small group discussion, we read Matthew 11, 25 through 12, 14. And this is another instance where we see Jesus redefining the Sabbath. And I love the picture that Matthew gives of how Jesus came to give us deep, eternal soul rest. Not one that's dependent on our works, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you are weary and worn out and tired of trying to keep up, I highly recommend reading those passages. And don't just stop at the end of Matthew 11. Keep reading because you'll see again how Jesus continues to prioritize people over tradition, how he puts relationship over ritual. So here we go. Let's dive in to John chapter five. Welcome everyone to week six. Um, Can you believe it? We are officially halfway through the study here. Um, I feel like it has been, um, we've been meeting forever and at the same time, like it is flying by. So, um, I'm so excited, um, and happy to, um, to be going through this with y'all this week. We were in John chapter five and I know that this was a longer chapter, um, and spoiler alert next week is even longer. Um, but, um, I'm really excited about, um, kind of diving in today this um so last week we concluded a set of stories from um uh, remember when we talked about there were kind of two sets of stories here um where he was either making a claim about himself jesus was or um performing a sign and so um we concluded one set of stories and now we're moving into a second set of stories that takes um will take us through the rest of the fall study um so this is chapters five through ten and it's um centers around um the jewish festivals or feast and so we'll see the first one tonight it's actually it takes place during a festival but really the highlight of it is Sabbath. Um, but then next week it is Passover. The, um, the weeks after that is the Feast of Tabernacles. And then um, Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication comes after that. Um, so before I really kind of dive in the scripture, I want to make sure we have an understanding of the history of Sabbath. Um, it was officially given as law to Moses in the Ten Commandments. Um, and if you'll remember, it said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. This is Exodus 20 um, verses 8 and following. Um, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And it continues to say, not your son, not your livestock, not your daughters, not your house servants. Um, and so that was the law that God had given. Um, but we even see it from the, the foundation of Christian, um, or sorry, the foundation of creation that, um, God worked and then he rested. Um, 
And it was given kind of in institution in the wilderness um, with the manna. So as the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, they're hungry. So God provides this dew-like um, substance every morning that they would go and they would collect. And um, it was called manna. They would make bread from it. And um, every day they, they collected the same amount. And if they tried to hold any over to the next day, it would spoil. But um, if they, um, on the sixth day, they would collect a double portion. And so um, without even realizing it, and on the sixth day into the seventh, that extra would not spoil. And it was a gift so that they did not have to work on the seventh day. Um, and um, it, I mean, really, honestly, it was rooted in this idea of trusting him to provide um, because they had been slaves in Egypt and and slaves don't get a day off. And so um, it really was a, um, a gift for them to be able to not have to work on Sabbath. But what happened over the years is that um, the Jewish religious leaders added to the original Sabbath law over 300, um, I think I've seen the number around 365 additional laws of what it means to not work on the Sabbath. Um, and um, and breaking Sabbath law was a capital offense. It was punishable by death. Um, so they made this really big deal about the Sabbath and all of these laws about what it meant to not work. Um, and I've been working on an Advent study um, journal and was really thinking around the idea of tradition. And I looked up the definition for tradition this week and I just thought it was so appropriate to um, our study. This is what um, the Oxford Languages Dictionary, theologically, this is what tradition means. Doctrine believed to have divine authority, though it is not in scriptures. So it's things that we believe have divine authority, yet are not in scripture. And so that is really what these laws were in reality. Um, and so I want you to keep that in mind as we read, um, because. We just read what God gave them, and then we see what they added to on top of that. So verse um, one, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, if you notice in the ESV um, or the CSB, it jumps to verse five. It totally skips verse four. And this is a great example of why we read in multiple translations. So you may have had a footnote that added that verse four and said that some manuscripts include this. So here's what verse, um, the end of verse three and verse four, waiting for the moving of the waters for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease he was um, afflicted. And so we have this added detail in here. Now that verse was not included in any of the manuscripts that are found before 400 AD. And so um, it may have been added as a footnote to add some additional explanation um, by a scribe later. 
Um, so that's why some include it and some don't. Um, but what's really most important is that we shouldn't get hung up on whether something should be in or not, because at the end of the day, it doesn't really affect the intent of this passage. Um, so if you have your book and you are taking a look at your map on page 19 of Jerusalem, you will see up here at the very top, the pools of Bethesda. Now, if you look, it actually looks like it's two, two little tiny pools. So remember where it said it had five colonnades? This is what's really cool. So uh, for a lot of years, it was really, they didn't have anything to support that. But then in the 1900s, they were doing archeological dig and they found this pool that had, it was two pools that had colonnades on all four sides and one across the middle. So it had five colonnades. It's very cool. Um, it was actually a reservoir that would hold um, rainwater because remember last week we talked about living water as um, moving water or spring water. They also considered water that fell from heaven or rain to also be pure and be usable. And so this water probably would have been used in the temple, the temple um, in that area. So, and then we also see this mention of the sheep gate. So if you look just a little south of that, right at the top of the temple, you'll see this tiny little break right in there. And it says the sheep, there's an arrow that's pointing to it. It's called the sheep gate. Now, Jerusalem is a walled city. So it has walls all around it. And then throughout that wall, there are built in gates or entrances into the city. And this particular one is the sheep gate. This is where the sacrificial lambs would have been brought into the city, into the temple to be sacrificed. So I want you to keep that in mind because we are going to get to that in chapter 10 in just a few weeks. Um, so let's pick up in verse five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Y'all, could you imagine? Think about where you were 38 years ago. Some of you may not have even been alive. <laughs> this man has been waiting. You know, I feel like 2020 has been 38 years. Um, some of, like, for him to be in this despairing place for 38 years, think of the desperation on this man and to be at this pool just sitting and waiting for hope, waiting for healing, waiting, but being trapped. I mean, he, as we're going to see, he has no hope of being healed. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had been there a long time, there we see a slight nod again to Jesus's omniscience, um, which points to him as um, God. He said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the water when the water is stirred up. And while I am going down the steps, another, um, while I am going another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had, who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. He answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked, who is the one who said to you, take up your bed and walk. And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. And so one of those Sabbath laws was that you could not carry any load on that Sabbath day. And so carrying his bed and walking was considered breaking the Sabbath law. And so the Jewish religious leader stop him and tell him, you're breaking the law. 
why are you doing that? And he said, well, I was healed. And this guy told me, but he doesn't know who because Jesus withdrew and there was a crowd there. Um, afterward, Jesus found him, this is verse 14, in the temple. And he said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And that man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So we see this is the third sign. So if you're keeping track of the seven signs that we see in the book of John in the back of your book, this is the third one. Um, and we again see Jesus put people over ritual. We see him putting people over tradition because remember these additional laws are not things that are in scripture. They were added as tradition. They sound like they have a divine authority, but they're actually not in scripture. Um, and I think what's really encouraging a couple things here is that God is always working. He is always working for our good. He does not take a day off him. Um, and there's a lot in Sabbath and y'all are going to go a little deeper into it in your um, small groups, but our God never stops working for our good. He never stops working um, in our lives. We can come to him at any day, 24 seven. And, um, and he is never too busy for us. Um, he is always working. But we see this um, turn where they are now seeking to kill Jesus, not only because he broke the Sabbath by healing someone, um, but because he is calling Jesus his father and putting himself equal with God. Um, now, to us, we may go, well, I call God father all the time. But it was in um, the original language and in the intonation of what he is saying that he was putting himself equal with God. He wasn't just merely saying that God is my father in the way that we would address him like in prayer. Um, and so this is how Jesus continues in his response to them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes um, me, Hold on, I lost my place. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life himself, he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment.
Y'all, it was a lot of words and it's a lot of confusing words. So we're going to dig a little deeper here. But first, I really want to touch on this truly, truly phrase. So by now we've seen it. Um, we just saw it three times in that passage. I think we've seen it maybe three times before this. John actually uses this phrase 25 times in his gospel. Um, it is the Greek word amen. So it's amen, amen, which we talked about last week when we talked about the God of truth, Elohim, amen. Um, it means truth or so be it. And we would typically add amen at the end of a prayer. So we would pray and then say, amen, so be it. This is truth. Um, but Jesus, by saying it at the beginning and doing the double amen, amen, he is saying, not only is what I'm about to tell you true, it also is truth that originates in him. It's a firsthand truth that he knows. And so it's like him saying, this is true and I know it's true because it's from me. And so it's a very powerful attention getting statement. Um, I've been keeping track of these in the back of my book too. Um, if you need to catch up, it's really easy. If you go to um, one of the online Bibles, you type truly, truly in, and then you can find the whole list of um, the truly, truly's in the book of John. Um, but um, so he's saying this is true. And we see here these two parts of the Trinity kind of playing out here. So the Trinity um, is the idea um, that there is a triune God where we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are all one. They all um, are the same, but some, but they function differently. So we see Jesus as the Son coming to earth. There are some things that he gives up of his godness, not making him any less God, but because he is constrained by human skin. Um, but he is, so he functions as a savior, but he is no less God and he is no less um, the character and, and encompasses the character of God. And so this got really wordy and confusing. Um, and honestly, I sat with it for a while this week. And um, then I remembered one of my favorite things to do, especially when you get wordy and things that are comparing two things that it's hard to keep up with, you make a chart. And so that's what I did this week. So um, this is a really great tool anytime you've got a lot of words. So you can take um, and make a column that says, here's what's true of the father and here's what's true of the son. And sometimes that kind of helps um, bring together into one idea instead of this back and forth and trying to figure it out. So we see so many things in here where Jesus is saying that he has the authority from God, the father, um, and he, which is basically him. Remember John's whole purpose is to show how Jesus is Messiah and that he is God, that he is divine. Um, so, um, he is pointing to all these things in himself. Jesus is saying these things in himself that point to his divinity, that he has life in himself. That means he exists on his own. He does not, um, he is not dependent on anything or anyone else for his own life. And because that life lives in him, he has the ability to judge. He has the authority over the world. Um, he has um, the knowledge that the father has, the son has. Um, and we've seen John over and over and over point to that omniscience that Jesus had. Um, and um, he talks about this beautiful, beautiful picture of how we pass from death to life. Now, um, I don't know, honestly, I will tell you, I don't know if this is literal, but here's what I do know. 
I know that is a beautiful picture of something that happens that's using an earthly example to give us a spiritual, um, to kind of represent a spiritual happening. So we've seen this multiple times. We saw him with Nicodemus talking about how we're born again. And so taking this earthly example to explain a heavenly concept, um, we saw it with last week in chapter four with the living water. Um, we saw it in, um, when he was talking about the destroying the temple and raising it three days uh, in three days, talking about his body. And so um, I think what we see here is a beautiful um, picture of what he does in our own lives. Because remember, without Jesus, we're dead. Um, we saw in John 3, 18, it talked about how we are condemned. Um, and we see it over and over again in scripture, this we are dead without Jesus. We're dead. First Peter three eighteen. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having put to having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Ephesians two five. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Colossians two. 13 through 14, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our transgression, transgressions, having canceled out of the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This beautiful picture of how we have been brought from death to life how we were in our own tombs. And when we listened to his voice and when we believed in him, we are saved and made alive. And when we read verses like first, we read that. And then we read verse 29, where it talks about how those who had done good works to the resurrection of life and those who had done evil works to the resurrection of, of judgment. Um, this is why it's really important. We must know the foundations of our faith because we know that we are not saved by our works. We're saved by faith. We see it over and over and we're saved by grace. It is nothing we can do. It is all on him um, that we find salvation. And so when we read a verse like that, our question should be, what am I missing here? Um, and we know that a life that has been changed, a life that has been moved from death to life, who've had their debts canceled, who've had them nailed to a cross, that the fruit of that, that the overflow of that is good works. And so good works are the evidence of our changed heart and the evidence of an unchanged heart, of a dead heart, of a, a heart that is not willing to follow Jesus are works of evil and works of the flesh and works of sin. And so that's what verse 29 is really pointing to. It's about the evidence of our life, whether we have been changed and said yes and heard his voice and walked out of our tomb. Um, and a life without Jesus, we are condemned and dead. And then Jesus continues and he makes this profound claim. He says, I can do nothing on my own. And as I hear judgment and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of whom who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, the testimony that, that he bears about me is true. So in um, scripture and in this time, typically um, it, you would need two to three witnesses minimum to um, validate what you're saying. And so follow what happens, what Jesus says. 
Um, you sent to John and he born witness, he has borne witness to the truth. So we have witness one, John, John the Baptist. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice um, for a while in his light. And so he, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Okay. I want you to remember that picture. Okay. So a lamp that they would have had would have been just small enough to hold in your hand. Um, and um, they were very little clay and you would put oil in them and it had a little wick and they were very small. And so he's saying that John was like a lamp, but I, Jesus, am a, um, have a testimony that is greater because as we get to the Feast of Tabernacles in a few chapters and he calls himself the light of the world, um, the light that he is referencing is a massive lantern. And so we see this comparison. Listen, John bore witness. He was this lamp, but I am greater than that. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So we have John the Baptist bearing witness. We also have the works that Jesus is doing are bearing witness. And the Father who has sent me himself has borne witness about me. So now we have the God, the Father himself has, has borne witness. His voice you have not heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So now we have the scriptures are bearing witness about him. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek glory that only comes from God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Witness number five, um, Moses. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So we see these multiple witnesses bearing witness to who Jesus is. Um, and the Jewish people and these leaders, they were missing it like the Pharisees who were coming to the scripture looking for eternal life. Um, they, we can study and we can memorize this book and we the stories, but unless we have the knowledge that Peter talks about in 2 Peter 2, this knowledge that is indicative of a firsthand relationship, it, it is because of an intimacy that we share in the way that we study scripture, in the way that we come to Jesus, in the way that we pray, that allows us to have that word abiding in us. Um, I love John uses that word logos, a form of the word logos here, not the word graphe. So in the Bible, when it's talking about scriptures and it's calling them the word, it uses this word graphe, which means the physical writings. And so he's not saying you don't have the physical writing in, in you. He's saying you don't have um, the logos in you. If you remember from week one, we talked about that is the divine wisdom that orders the universe. It is Jesus. Jesus is this divine wisdom personified in the flesh that came to dwell with us, that holds our universe together. And if you do not have his words living in you, then 
we are at risk for missing him. Um, it's not enough to just study and read and have answers. We must apply what we have. We must have wisdom, um, not just this knowledge that's, that's in our head. Um, which is why when we're studying, I don't have you all stop at what does this mean? And then you go on your day. It's why we ask the question, what should I do? Or what should my response be? And I don't like to ask if I'm very careful not to ask, what should I do in response? Because um, I think that our tendency, especially as believers, is to think, okay, I got to do something. I got to do something. I got to do something. But our response may be stillness. Our response may be worship. Our response may be prayer. And all of those lead us to our Father. Um, and we won't recognize them if we do not have that living word living inside of us, abiding inside of us. Um, and the Bible is the way we get to know our God. Um, and y'all are doing a great job because you're here and I'm really proud of you. Um, his word must abide in us. Um, we read in Psalm 119 about um, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. Abiding putting his word in our heart is what helps protect us from sin, but it's what also drives us to the feet of the father. Um, we cannot follow what we do not know. We cannot love what we do not know. But even more than that, I love this word abide. It's also translated dwell. It means to stay, to remain. But even more specifically in this verse, it means not to depart, not to leave to continue to be present. His word should not depart from us. His word should not leave us. His word should continue to be present in us. And we cannot forget the big picture of scripture, that all of this is the redemption story. It is the thread of redemption, a God who is constantly working to reconcile him, him, us to himself. And that's why he came. That's why he healed on the Sabbath, because he is saying, this is not, I am here to reconcile the people. I am here to heal. I am here to make the dead alive. That is the, the most ultimate healing we can receive in our soul. Um, I love, I was listening to um, Stacy Thacker today on, um, she did a face, a video on Facebook because today's launch day for Threadbare Prayers. It's official book birthday day. And I'm so excited. Um, it's been so fun seeing all these posts all day, but she had this video on her Facebook page and you can go watch it. But she said, prayer is how we hold on to God. And honestly, um, that just got me because, um, yes, we read his word, but, and this is why I love her book so much is because it's literally praying scripture back to him. It's taking his word and praying it back to him. It's, it's giving us this opportunity to hold on to God and to hold him in our hearts um, so that his word is abiding in us. It's how we stay. It's how we remember his character. It's how we hold on to him. It's how we remember and abide in his words. And I am so proud of y'all because you're doing the hard work and you're here and you have, you have hung in there now for six weeks and we're halfway through and y'all each week gets better and better. And I'm so thankful for y'all. And I'm so thankful that you are here doing this with us. 
The thread of redemption throughout the whole of scripture points us to Jesus. It's why in this study we ask the question, what does this say about God before we ever try to interpret or apply this to our own lives? We have a tendency to look at passages, particularly in the Old Testament, and put ourselves in the story. But we are not the hero. Jesus is. We are not David flinging stones at the enemy. Jesus is. We are the Israelites cowering in camp, helpless. We are not Esther bravely standing before the king to save our people. Jesus is the one who came for such a time as this to save his people from certain death to open our, the tombs of our heart and to bring us to life. A few years ago, I did an Advent study that went through several Old Testament stories and showed how Jesus was the more and better. He's the more and better Adam. He's the more and better Joseph. He's the more and better Moses. They all are, as the, Hebrew, as the author of Hebrews puts it, a shadow of Jesus, pointing us to the real hero, the more and better savior. And next week, we will see in our study another shadow from the Old Testament that is meant to point us to Jesus, who is our bread of life. Let me pray for us before you go. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for um, the opportunity to have it abide in us, not just the words written in scripture, but your very essence um, through the Holy Spirit that lives in us. God, thank you for the abiding word that you so graciously impart so that we have hope, that we have peace, so that we can know you, Lord, and trust you and fall at your feet and worship you. Lord, we are so unworthy. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for making the way for us to have relationship with you. Thank you that this is not about ritual and it's not about the things that we have made it, but God, that we worship. And Lord, through our prayer, we hold on to you. Through your words, we hold on to you, to your character, to your truth. Lord, I just pray for every woman listening. I pray for every man who may be listening. God, that you um, continue to draw us closer to you, to reveal more of yourself, Lord, and that we would be your glory bearers to the world around us. Father, we love you, and it's in your holy, precious name we pray. Amen.